Welcome to the Wake the Giant broadcast. This is Alan Garrett, your host. Today, I have a special guest named Bob Scott. Bob Scott has been involved in church leadership, planting, church planting missions, uh, ministering in the marketplace and, and training people in that area. And he is the head guy for the Joseph Company. So uh, welcome, welcome, Bob. Well, thanks for having me. So is, uh, the official title is not, is it's the Joseph Company Global? Yeah. Okay. Well, and if Joseph you want to find... Is a, Joseph Company is a concept, and I added the name Global simply because of the fact it's an international concept. Okay. And we'll talk about, and we'll go into kind of your vision behind that and some of the things that, that uh, birthed that. But uh, if you want to go to the site and check it out, it's uh, joecomglobal.com. So www.jocomglobal.com. Um, if you just put in uh, Joseph Company and Bob Scott into go any Google search, you'll find him. So he's pretty easy to find. The site's easy to find, even if you can't remember that. Um, and then on the, on the site, it uh, says you do life coaching, organizational consulting, and you have a blog on there. You want to talk a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, a lot of this started back in uh, the early 80s, 1983 to be specific. Um, I had come up through the ministry track uh, with a focus on church planting. And that was primarily due to the fact that uh, at Bible school, we were taught the most important thing God's doing is planting churches. And the most significant people he's using are those that plant these aforementioned churches. So that was sort of my worldview. And that got interrupted uh, rather dramatically in the early 80s. So I started uh, finding myself meeting with uh, the guys that sat on the back row of, of the church, which were pro athletes. Mm. Uh, people in the arts and entertainment world, uh, those in the geopolitical world, and those in the business community, all of them asking the same question, how does anything here impact my world? Yeah, how does it relate to me? So yeah. I, I, uh, I started life coaching individuals. And then, of course, um, those individuals run different organizations. And then the question emerged, well, how does this impact that? And mm. It's interesting because most of what you see in terms of market uh, marketplace ministry is, interestingly enough, a church body on a business chassis. Hmm. It's like we're trying to reproduce church hmm. in the marketplace. That's, yeah. And so one of the things that I try to do is look at things from maybe a different angle. And instead of having a church-centric concept, I look at it from the aspect of creation, mm. you know, mm. I mean, all the economics actually come from the soil. Mm -hmm. I mean, the birthplace of, of our whole, all of our economies, our business, everything has its originality Roots. in the earth. Mm. And so somehow or another, we've sort of lost touch with the creator. And what I like to do is bring people back to the, to that God of creation versus simply the Jesus of the church. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that uh, most of the, what God, let me see if I can find this. I just, I discovered that most of what God 
actually ha- does happens outside the church through people not in ministry. Yeah. Well, again, when you, you know, the thing about subcultures that we all grow up in is they give us a set of glasses and tell us where to look, what to mm-hmm. see and how to interpret it. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had become a Christian in the middle of 1975 and within three months I was at Bible school mm-hmm. and and I was, you know, baptized into a subculture that told mm-hmm. me exactly how to look, mm-hmm. what I was supposed to see, and mm-hmm. what it all meant, right? Yeah. And so I came out of the whole culture, you know, a, a very programmed foot soldier. And, and it's not that it's wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing that I learned at Bible school that was wrong. What I didn't understand until the 80s was how narrow it was. Mm. You know, yeah. I had I had been given this set of classes with with blinders on it that basically told me that I, you know, that I've got to look in here. So uh, one of the word pictures I use to help people sort of describe um, or understand what I'm talking about is that the religious world is like living in a maze. Mm-hmm. It's got high walls, narrow corridors, and you either go forward or backward. <laughs> yeah. The God of creation lives on a ranch. And he puts boundaries on the edge of it and says, mm-hmm. you know, outside of this is trouble. But everything inside of this thing, yeah. have at it. Be creative. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Religious uh, organizations can tend to be a little uh, narrow focused. I, I, I'll just say that. Well, they could suck the air out of the room. Mm-hmm. They can. Now, you wrote... Uh, you, you're just coming out with a book, and there's there, you have two books. One you wrote a while ago, and one that you're just coming out with. The first one was called Saving Zimbabwe, and then one you you just came out with is called In the Company of Joseph. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your first book. I bought both of them. I read In the Company of Joseph, and I started the Saving Zimbabwe and skimmed through it so I could have some things to talk about uh, in this interview. But it looks really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you want to give a little background on that book, Saving Zimbabwe. And I saw in there you had a, a, a chapter on, on, uh, on the jo- a Joseph Company, too. Mm. So I, I think that some of the roots in, uh, have, go back into your experiences there. So you want to look, talk a little bit about the book and what that one is in, in case somebody's interested in that one? Sure. Um, you know, the whole Zimbabwe uh, chapter of my life, which seems to be an ongoing one with it's it's segmented and it's i've sort of have a love-hate relationship mm. with the whole journey and here's why is what initially got me excited was that one of the questions that i was asking after i became a christian was is there anywhere in the world where the teachings of jesus actually bring former enemies together mm. good question in other words does this stuff really work? You know, I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a young Christian and and I'm discovering church history and I see 2000 years of Christians killing each other and everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm and I'm looking at the teachings of Jesus and and they're so focused on reconciliation. So this question kept ruminating in my mind for nearly a decade like is her anywhere mm-hmm. where forgiveness really works, not just forgiving your friend. Mm-hmm. What about forgiving your, your enemy. enemy, right? So what happened was I was uh, pleasantly surprised um, in 1980, 
1983. At the end of 1983, there were two uh, itinerant Jewish guys that came through Kansas City. Mm. And we were having this conversation sort of surrounding the whole Holocaust drama. Mm. And I was telling them this journey that I was on and how depressed I was in the fact that I couldn't find this anywhere. Mm. And they looked at me with a shocking look on their face and said, we know where you need to go. Mm. There's such a place in Zimbabwe. Wow. So I got on an airplane in February of 84 and flew over there. And there had been a, a civil war in Zimbabwe between the white uh, government and the black population, which was the majority. It was called the Bush War. Mm. And in 1980, it ended and Rhodesia became Zimbabwe. And these former white Rhodesian soldiers sold everything they had and moved from the urban areas out to the rural areas to try to figure out how to live with their former enemies. Mm. And the place was called the Community of Reconciliation. That's and powerful. so that's how I got involved. And, and, and the essence of it was, is, is, is churches in a building to relate, you know, church mm -hmm. is a relationship. And these were people that were related. They didn't build a church. They never mm. built the church. They built a community. Mm. So anyways, I got very excited. And then, tragically, on Thanksgiving in 1987, I'm at my mother-in-law's house. And I get the phone call from hell, which basically I get informed that 16 of my friends at the project got massacred. Wow. And they burned the whole place to the ground. And I'm standing there you know, in a family event, basically in shock and have to get on an airplane the next day and fly back over there and find out what the heck happened. The result of that was I was so completely um, devastated that yeah. I never talked about it for two decades. I didn't know, I didn't know how to process it. Yeah. Just, 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 I was looking through some of the descriptions of you walking into the building where your friends have been killed and I was going, wow, that is just, uh, you almost don't know what to say when, when, you, when you read that. Well, it, it messed me up. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not, you'll find with me that, you know, I'm all about authenticity, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to hide, you know, my yeah. journey, but it was, it was a train wreck at high speed. I, I didn't know what to do with it. And sadly, um, most people don't know what to do with it. So nobody wanted to talk to me about mm -hmm. it because nobody knew how to deal with it themselves. So I sort of lived in a self-inflicted exile for mm -hmm. about two decades. And in 2007, um, I had was meeting with a, a guy who was um, a psychiatrist, I believe. It was either a psychologist or psychiatrist. And he pointed out to me that I had PTSD. Mm from the experience. And that's why I spent 20 years kind of living, reliving the mm -hmm. whole drama. And so he encouraged me that the way that um, I could help heal myself was to write and tell my story. Mm -hmm. So the book initially was a cathartic journey of me having to face something mm -hmm. that I had been trying to run from for two decades. And uh, it developed into a book and, and it came out in uh, basically 2009, which then I ended up re-engaging with Zimbabwe. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Um, I think there was another quote I wanted to read from that. Um, um, there was one quote that came from that 
and it said the Christian uh, the Christian community's biggest challenge has never been one of words but of deeds. I just like that quote. <laughs> well, if you think it through, has there ever been a time in human history where there's been more information about Christendom? Mm. I mean, we have libraries full of books, right? Yes. We have media, more media than you could possibly imagine. I mean, it's it's just we're inundated with information. So knowledge isn't really the problem. Yeah. The real breakdown, um, as far as I can see, is that we still haven't grasped, uh, I believe it's it's uh, it's probably Romans 828 or 829, where Paul talks about that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Mm. In other words, that's the mission. Yes. And, I, and I think our biggest struggle as a community hasn't been on the information side. It's been on the action side. It's mm -hmm. living Christ-like. And I think that's where you know the rubber sort of meets the road. And if you look at all of the criticism that comes from those outside of our community, mm -hmm less about what we know and more about what we do or don't mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Um, I recently watched a video called Sheep Among Wolves too. Have you heard of that? Yes. Um, I just watched it over the last couple of days. A friend of mine, Danny Stain, had, had recommended it. And if you watch it, you might not agree with everything in it, but it's pretty powerful. And mm. it, it's, a, it's about the church in Iran. And the mm -hmm. fastest growing church right now is the church in Iran. So the place it's just growing is uh, the church is growing is Iran, Iran, China, yeah. you know, places like that where they're not allowed to meet, so they can't have organized, organized institutional church the way we know it. <laughs> so uh, oh, I hear you, brother. Yeah. So one of the um, one of the quotes I think from that movie was that if you uh, if you plant a church, you, you might make disciples. But if you make disciples, you will end up planting churches. Mm. And so the emphasis is on relationship and living like Jesus. In fact, they won't even, they don't share the gospel the typical way that your Westerner would share the gospel. They don't go, well, there are four spiritual laws that you have to understand. And I mean, that's okay. I've used that and it's changed people's lives, but there's something deeper. They, they'll just they'll start making disciples and they're, they're not even saved yet. It's kind of their well, philosophy. It's kind of really interesting. Trouble. I got myself in trouble in the 1980s at mm -hmm. a church growth conference. Mm -hmm. And I'd sit there for three days and it was just information, right? Mm -hmm. Methodologies, you know, all these mm -hmm. programs, you know, these you know, three steps of this and five steps of that and 10 steps to this. And finally I'd had enough and my spirit was just, you know, I was mm -hmm. anxious. So I raised my hand and I said, you know, it's interesting, but the one um, methodology that I haven't heard talked about yet is persecution. Mm. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there was a dead silence in the room. And I said, it's so interesting to me because the fastest growing churches in the world are the ones that are oppressed. That's true. And nobody knew what to do with that. They all started staring at me, and I, and, and mm -hmm. it was just this awkward silence. And I said, I, I, I'm sorry, but Christianity is the religion of the mm -hmm. oppressed. Yeah. Jesus came to the broken and the downtrodden. Yeah, that's true. It, uh, that is so true. 
Yeah, I get myself in trouble sometimes. Um, your second book is In the Company of Joseph. Um, and it is a book I think that people need to read. Uh, it's it's eye-opening. I mean, I knew a lot of what was in the book, but it it kind of put it all together and and said and it said a few things too that I, I also needed to hear. But it's called In the Company of Joseph. Uh, you want to talk about your journey towards that in writing that? Sure. And there's a subtitle, which is When the Past Becomes the Future. Mm. And the reason I added that subtitle is that um, there's really nothing new under the sun. History repeats itself. It, it does. And it's because what drives history is human nature, and that's never changed. So many of the left lessons that are in history actually are very relevant for today. And many of the people that God used through that time are relevant to today. And to me, Joseph sort of stands at the forefront of that. But again, if you remember what we were talking about earlier, my, my journey towards the whole Joseph company global paradigm starts from me being a, a church planner. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so again, you know, I, I might've had a, a train wreck in, um, you know, in 1987, but I, I had a collision in 1983 mm -hmm. too, but it was a different type of one. It was a collision of worldviews. Mm. And um, for a while it really messed me up. But um, one of the things I talk about in the book was a very pivotal moment for me was understanding Hebrews 11. Hmm. And in Hebrews 11, um, we, we sort of run into what we could call the spiritual hall of fame, right? These mm -hmm. are all the, the game changers in the Bible mm -hmm. who, who moved history forward. And, and, you know, they're the revered ones. And in Bible school, you know, we were like, you know, was sort of insinuated. These were all the guys in, or women in the ministry, right? Mm -hmm. These were the, you know, the <laughs> spiritual giants, right? And, 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 or, and, or they were all a type of Jesus, right? So their only relevance mm -hmm. was they were, you know, they were somehow revealing more of Jesus. And so I ended up reading through this chapter and the question came to me, well, who are these people? Yeah. Good question. Like, really, you know, like, forget the fact that they might be a type of Jesus and forget they're in the Hall of Fame. Like, what did they actually do? What did their life did look live, like? Right. So I, I, I began this study and discovered that 14 of the 15 people in the who's who of, of, of Hebrews 11 have nothing to do with ministry. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you looked at the if you look at the, the 12, Jesus picked the 12 and they they were businessmen and fishermen and that kind of thing. They weren't, he didn't go to, let me see who was on staff at, at the local synagogue. You know, he picked people that were working people very, if that isn't a statement, you know what I mean? He, yeah, that he, a, that he wants point. to use your average working person to change the world. Well, and that's a, a point that I use quite frequently in trying to help shift you know, the, I call them the lost Josephs, the mm. wandering Josephs. They're out there sort of disoriented and, and confused. Mm -hmm. And, and that's always a really eye opening uh, paradigm shift for mm -hmm. them because you're, 
again, there's all these unspoken rules or or subtle ways that you're you're taught to think, right? And so mm-hmm. most people's default setting is, well, these were all religious guys. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, you know, we have this this mentality in the church that you have to be spiritual to be in the ministry, right? God picks mm-hmm. all the holy people. And and yet here's this story where the guys that Jesus recruits mm-hmm. to build the greatest movement in the history of the world. You know, the greatest impactual <laughs> worldview in the history of humanity. And not a single one of these guys is from Jerusalem. Not one of them has been mm. trained in any of the ministry schools. Yep. They're, they're basically small business owners and an ex-government employee. <laughs> yep. That's true. And not a single one of them are from Jerusalem. Yeah. I mean, it's offensive. I mean, from from the paradigms that we're all taught, mm-hmm. it's offensive. It's yes. like, what? Yeah. Who? And uh, another thing uh, that hit me in the book, and I've, I've thought, thought about, I've had this thought before, but a point you make is that God uses messed up people. Yeah. You know, and uh, uh, he just does. He uses people. I mean, I've seen it over and over again in the church. People, even they get into leadership and they're messed up, but God's used them. Right. And it's because it's him, not us, you know? Well, again, that's a, a narrative we were all taught at school, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all the books we read were the, you know, the monks and the spirit, you know, all mm-hmm. these people whose lives were sequestered away or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it was like, it was all focused on the holy you are, mm-hmm. the higher you go, right? Yeah. It was this sort of a, right? And then you get in and you read the Bible, Mm-hmm. And like everyone in the Bible is broken mm-hmm. and every family's dysfunctional. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> I agree with you. I, I, uh, I mean, I, I do think that, that, and I, and I know you do too, that it, it is important to, to those concepts of things like holiness and, and trying to, trying to live godly lives and, and stepping into positional you know, that we're who we are in Christ and all that stuff is, it's all important. So those, you're not saying that those theologies and things aren't important, but when well, you it's lo- the motive, right? Yeah. It's it, see in, in the, in the Christian world, the motive is I get holy so I can get something. Mm-hmm. Right. If we look back at what we just talked about in Romans, mm-hmm. we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So becoming yep. holy is out of love. Mm-hmm. And it's not re- because there's a hidden agenda where we get stuff. Yeah, and it's really a, to me holiness is is about being given to Jesus. That's it. Well, it's a hard, it's a again, hard thing. Well, and again, if you go back in and and you look at the root definitions of all these things, mm-hmm. all it means is you're other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You're unique. Well, that's not always simply because of your religiousness, yeah. right? You know, so one of the things that 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 I I remind people of all the time is that the Bible is probably an R, maybe even an X-rated movie that mm-hmm. gets scrubbed every Sunday morning down to a G-rated <laughs> version. Right. Yeah. And and it's a real problem because if you're young or, you know, you're or with our kids, you know, Mm -hmm. and and in in an effort to try to 
keep them away from more of the salacious stuff, mm -hmm. we sort of create this cartoon version of the Bible, right? Yeah. And Noah's cute with his little animals and, you know, <laughs> all this cute stuff, right? Then you get older and you start reading it and you discover <laughs> in every which way these are broken and dysfunctional people. Yeah. And somehow or another, God in his mercy is still using them. So one of the things that uh, the way that I sort of describe it is, is that from the beginning of time, the way it's always worked is it's broken clay vessels mm -hmm. and the grace of God. Yeah. Those two realities have been there since the beginning and yeah. they've never changed. That's good. So your book has two major parts to it. Uh, one, it, it talks about technological shifts, emerging the emerging global shockwave. And the second part is Joseph Company, God's response to change. So um, you mentioned that there is uh, a coming radical shift. Our, uh, you say our normal is about to shift. Um, and I agree with you. What are some of your thoughts around that? I know there's some technology shifts. There's AI being developed. What, what do you see coming our way? Well, it's sort of interesting. So to give you a little background about that. Um, when I originally wrote the book, I never had any of the um, information about what's coming from the tech side. And, and the reason was I was really concerned that that information would take away from the focus of the book, which is on the who, not the what. And a few of my colleagues who knew who I'd been talking to over the years about what was coming really encouraged me to bring that into the narrative. So I actually added that later mm. um, only to create context. Mm -hmm. In other words, the, the, that's the context to explain it. So um, it's, it's so interesting because when the book came out in February originally, a lot of people were scratching their head going, okay, wow, right? Mm -hmm. Then six weeks later, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And everything shifts. So yeah. suddenly my phone's lighting up and my <laughs> inbox is just, you know, yeah. and, and people are going, how did you know? Yeah. Like, how did you, how did you know there was change coming? Well, in full disclosure, I, I, I never really saw a pandemic coming. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and really the pandemic isn't, I mean, even though it's a big deal, mm -hmm. what people need to understand is the pandemic is just the beginning. Yes. It's an accelerator. It's not the issue. It's an issue because people are living and dying. So I don't want to minimize that, mm -hmm. but you have to understand that this is actually a precursor. It's a, it's an eye opener. It's God's way of sort of shaking us up a little bit and what shifting us in our narrow way of thinking to mm -hmm. realize there's change coming because what's happening right now suddenly um the blinders are coming off mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of things that are hidden are all of a sudden coming to the forefront mm -hmm. and we're all suddenly looking at that familiar things normal things in abnormal ways right we're mm -hmm. we're looking at things that we've taken for granted assumptions that we've made presumptions that we mm -hmm. lived in and just assume that was normal. That's all it was the way it's going to mm -hmm. be. And then suddenly this traumatic event happens and everything gets shaken. Mm -hmm. 
And so now we're in the middle of this massive shift. And of course, people are trained to figure out where in the heck is this going? Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the book is going to be helpful in that regard, because one of the things that we have to stop and realize is what's happening now and, and what's driving a lot of it. Is it new? Yes, it isn't. The, the same dynamics that have been affecting humanity for 6,000 years are all happening now. It's just a different, you know, it's the, mm-hmm. the characters are different and some of the means and methodology are different, but it's the same driving forces mm-hmm. at work. It is. Yeah. Uh, we were talking earlier and, and you, uh, we were talking about history and how history repeats itself that often there are those that, that want to control things. Um, and then uh, you mentioned tech is the means, but uh, and but what is the motive behind uh, all of the? Well, so it, so I think the Bible, interesting enough, though we look at it as a spiritual book, it's actually a historical book, mm-hmm. and it's a sociological book. Meaning it's a it's like looking at at rings on a tree, right? You can mm-hmm. just go back and look. Well, if you go back and study the history of humanity, it starts off everybody's living as individuals. And then, and then people started coming together and we see the formation of tribes and with tribes, we see the formation of villages. Mm -hmm. And then from villages, we see major cities and then we see nations. You see Mm -hmm. that as, as the concentric circle, they start growing, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in every one of these situations, once people gather together, you see a, a similar dynamic happening, which is the strongest, and, and the person who's perceived as the smartest always rises to the top, mm. right? And then, and you always see this, there's an, what, what, what begins to happen in order to run these various entities, we need institutions, mm. right? And institutions are about a small, peop- a small group of people at the top, which mm-hmm. are these elite group of people controlling the masses, right? Because we have to mm-hmm. have order. Once we get a bunch of people together, we got to have order. Right. And so how do the people at the top control the massive amount of people at the bottom? Right. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a trade that happens. It's a it's a swap and it's happened all through history. And it's always this. The two things that that the people at the bottom want are to be protected. Mm -hmm. Right. To feel safe and to be provided for. Mm -hmm. I need I need provision. Right. So the elite group tends to use technology as the means of protection and provision. I mean, if you go back and look mm-hmm. at tech in the in the early days, a lot of it was military mm-hmm. centric, right? Because whoever had the best women's weapons dominated. Yeah. Right. Yep. Then over the course of time, you see more technology develop. Like if you go back and study ancient Persia, mm-hmm. they figured out how to build underground aqueducts in the mountains hundreds of miles away so they could get water to their mm-hmm. big capitals. See the Romans doing it. Right. So technology was how the elite provided for the masses. Mm-hmm. Well, in order to to make that transition work, what do you have to give up? In other words, the people that want protection and mm-hmm. the people that want provision have to trade something. You know what they always trade? Power? Freedom. Freedom. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's another way of saying that. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So they so they abdicate 
mm-hmm. self-sufficiency, freedom in order for be taken those care of things. Yeah. Right. And so this isn't new. This has been going on for thousands of years. This transaction has been going on and it's mm. repeating itself all over again now. Yeah. And, and we're seeing it. Right. So, so, um, that's why I say you don't really need to be prophetic. You can, if you're a sociologist and a historian, you can already see what, what's going mm-hmm. on. Right. So, so this elite group are always driven by two values, two underlying things, right? And I, and I kind of summarize it as status and stuff, mm. right? Whoever is in that elite group has the power over status and stuff. And, and if you reduce status and stuff down, it's basically your, our egos and mm-hmm. greed. Yeah. And that's what drives all of this. Yes. So who's free? You know, I mean, that's a, it's an interesting concept, but think about it. who is really free. Mm. And, and the truth of it is, is that unless you have land, unless you have your own dwelling and can provide for yourself, you're not free. You're codependent. So you've seen what's happening in the United States. If you go back in the early 1900s, most everybody lived in the rural areas. They lived mm-hmm. on the land. Mm-hmm. They were free. In a in hundred years, that is completely flipped. And now we've all moved into the urban areas where we have no actual freedom. Yeah, we have less. We're completely a lot less. dependent on systems, right? And mm-hmm. who provides those systems? The government. Right. A small group of people mm-hmm. at the top control all of us through the institutions and the rules they make, right? Yeah, I can and really... We all happily give up our freedom yeah. so we can be provided for and feel safe. You know who I can see that mentality in a lot is the press. I was seeing him <laughs> talk to the governor of, uh, of uh, I think it was, I think it was New York. I was watching. I was, uh, and they were, the questions they were asking were just like, "Well, well, we expect you to fix everything. We expect you to provide for everything. Why, right. why haven't you?" There, there was very strong worded tones, like, like if you haven't fixed this and done it properly, mm-hmm. you haven't done your job. Right. It was very. I mean, uh, and I'm going. Early, give the, I was thinking, give the guy a break. He's trying. <laughs> well, our early American forefathers would be rolling over in their mm-hmm. graves right now. Yeah, yeah, they would. Right, because never in their wildest dreams would they have mm-hmm. ever seen the federal government as so powerful as it is now. Yes, it's become a lot more I mean, if you go back and I, I showed a, a graph the other day of the federal budget, mm-hmm. and for like you know. 200 years, it's mm-hmm. like flatlined, right? And then mm-hmm. suddenly, in the last 60 or seven years, it's gone, it's spiked. Yeah. And why is that? Because now we've moved away from, you know, our individualness, mm-hmm. our individual free, even at a state level, and moved everything to the federal level. So now this one city on the eastern side of the United States mm-hmm. is making all of these decisions for mm-hmm. the rest of us. Well, What's now what what's happening is this pandemic 
has suddenly opened mm -hmm. Pandora's box, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And people are starting to realize, wait, wait a minute here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm watching the social media right now, and there's a lot of questioning going on. I'll just say that. Well, again, because yeah. we, you know, we're sort of, you know, what's been happening is sort of like, you know, I mean, it's an overused analogy, but it's the frog in the boiling water, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, you, it's the temperature has been slowly, incrementally rising over decades. Mm -hmm. The yeah. world that I grew up in, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I was born in the 50s. I mean, mm -hmm. the idyllic 50s. You know, my I was formed in the rebellious 60s mm -hmm. and all that. But the world, even Christianity, for that matter, has shifted dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I'll just give you one one example from the church perspective. When when I came into the faith in 1970, it was I gave up everything and became a bond servant. Mm. I existed for God. Yes, I was His bond servant. In 2020, everything that's written is about how God exists mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. I saw a Barna uh, survey, and I, I, I quoted it online. And it, they basically asked, what's the, the, the best, the chief good to live for or something? I can't, some kind of question like that. And every, um, most people checked off that uh, the, uh, f the way to be fulfilled was to... Uh, basically something along long lines of uh, living a happy life. Mm. And I, I saw that and I go, well, that's self-fulfillment. Self and I go, there's, there's an issue I have with that. <laughs> and I do believe that, that I was to, it was to enjoy life, was it? That was the highest good, was to enjoy life. And I do believe that God likes it when we enjoy life. He's a good dad. So I don't have a problem with that. But I'm, I was thinking, well, what happens when you, when like, something doesn't go your right way, the right way, or God asks you to do something you don't enjoy. Mm. If, if the highest good is to enjoy life, then I'm going to enjoy life. I'm not going to do what I perceive the Lord asking me to do that I don't want to do. I mean, you know, you understand what I'm saying? So I, I just, in my I, view, there's something that went to me that, is when, uh, that went to skew in the, uh, that, that well, I, here, reveal. I, I'll try to see if I could put my finger on it for you. And because I, I was just writing about this for another book, mm -hmm. in my view, narcissism mm -hmm. is to our time what Gnosticism was to the early church. Mm -hmm. The spirit of narcissism is become so saturated into our worldview mm -hmm. that it's all about me. Every, every way we look at things mm -hmm. is how does it affect me yeah i think right? that's true and well you can even see it in how people react to martyrdom mm -hmm. it used to be martyrdom was an honor now you're an idiot mm. um uh, uh there's a, a a teaching now which i th i think is is good in a lot of ways but the the teaching that god is good now it's true mm. that god mm. is good he is mm. always good but what happens is when you get a culture of narcissism and you preach that into a culture of narcissism, people, they, uh, they interpret good in their own eyes. Mm. So uh, uh, is that make, you understand what I'm saying? So oh, I, I totally. believe God is good, but we have to realize that he's always good. He's good when he's angry. And yes, he gets angry. 
He's good when he makes a judgment. He's good mm. uh, at the end of at the end of the world when we're all uh, meet with him, and there's the the great judgment, and we're all going to be held accountable for what we do. He's still good. He's still loving. Well, the but, re- but reason people, I think nar- people need to realize that, yeah, that he's good in every situation, but not necessarily how you think he's good. This is the end of part one of the interview with Bob Scott, founder of the Joseph Company Global and author of In the Company of Joseph. For part two, continue on to the next episode.